0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact, and I will let my co-hosts introduce themselves.
1: I'm J.R. Jameson, Executive
2: Director of Indiana Campus Compact. I'm Andrew Sillingson, President of Campus Compact.
0: Let's just tell everybody that it is uh, early on a Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> it is.
2: <laughs> One thing I noticed about this Monday morning is that it's early.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's early, and it, at least here in Iowa, it is cold. <laughs> so Yeah, a um, little indeed. chilly
2: here in Boston as well. Yeah,
0: So that's how I'm feeling. And uh, we need to start right off, I think, by talking about just the events of the last couple of weeks. We're recording this um, right before Thanksgiving, and uh, wanted to just touch base on the election, the reaction to the election, that kind of thing. Um Andrew, why don't you start just with how Campus Compact has responded so far?
2: Well, you know, I think, of course, we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. We don't uh, take sides in elections. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have an interest in the long-term health and sustainability of American democracy. So I, I think there were a lot of things in the campaign that were of great concern to us and that motivate a lot of our, you know, efforts at improving our work of feeling that we were not really engaged as a country in serious discussions of public policy questions and how different candidates might advance progress on those and you know i think our concern about having kind of increasing threat in at least rhetoric to some basic foundational elements of democracy like uh... you know an impartial judiciary like a free press these things that we think of as bedrock have become uh, things that, you know, are getting attacked. And so I think there's a sense that we as an organization and higher education as a sector have to be ready to articulate the importance of the free expression of ideas and uh, diversity of opinion being something that we ought to celebrate and not threaten, et cetera. So I think, you know, that's some of what I've been thinking about. And communicating uh, with member institutions about and hopefully something that we can all rally around.
0: Absolutely. I know here in Iowa, our board put together a statement and mainly it was reaction to what has been happening on a lot of campuses in the last couple of weeks. You know, some really scary incidents of um, speech, harassment, that kind of thing. Um, And I think that's the thing I'm seeing people trying their hardest to, to figure out. How do we respond to that? How do we You know respond to student protests how do we really use this moment to do what we're supposed to be doing which is teaching right um so thinking about that i don't know jr what's uh been going on for you
1: we've been seeing the same thing in indiana as far as um, graffiti happening in certain places hate speech that's being used and if that's attached to the election or not campuses trying to respond to that in a timely Way in a respectful way as well. We've seen several of our presidents and chancellors put out statements. Uh, There was an incident that happened on one of our member campuses during chapel. The university was fast to respond to that. So I think we are just in a time where everyone's trying to figure out um, one kind of what's what's happening in this aftermath of everything but also how do we uh, move forward in a way where all voices are included but also um, not allow room in some ways for hate speech that is dangerous in a way that can be harmful to certain individuals.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it'll be interesting to see where it continues. To me, it feels like a moment where people are more and more interested in you know civic learning, civic action outcomes. And of course, that's encouraging to me. So good to see. Um, but of course our work continues and Andrew I know you just uh, spent some time this weekend with our Newman Civic Fellows. You want to talk about that?
2: Yeah this was you know I think in a moment where a lot of people are feeling some despair and uncertainty uh, and a lot of conflict this for me was an incredibly uplifting experience. So our Newman Civic Fellows program is a program that recognizes students who have demonstrated a commitment to the public good through their actions on their campuses and in their communities they're nominated by their college presidents and we had about a hundred of them gather here in Boston over the weekend at the Edward M Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate and we did a senate simulation that the institute uh... designed that was just an incredible experience students negotiating over the farm bill which as many of you know includes not only things like farm subsidies and supports but also Basic nutrition programs like the SNAP program. And so it was an opportunity for students to really get out of their own perspectives, think about kind of different ways of looking at the world, different interests. We did some kind of uh, workshops on working through conflict. We had them get together and just talk about the work they're doing in their communities. And they were just an extraordinary group of. People actually, I was going to say young people, but in fact, we have many non-traditional students, graduate students, really students of all ages, but people at a stage in their life where they're just wide open to thinking, to connecting, to looking forward. The students were fired up about what they did and about working together into the future. One of the students uh, said we should start talking about the Newman effect, you know, the collective impact of this group and the ways they can catalyze change on their campuses, in their communities, and as a network across the country. So it was the first time we've brought these students together, and uh, I'm really looking forward to what they do and to just continuing to build this community of Newman Civic Fellows within the Campus Compact Network and just for the good of our country.
0: That's fantastic. I'm actually interviewing one of the Iowa students who went later today. Um, But I already know she emailed me uh, on her way back, and the email had a lot of exclamation points, let's just say. (laughs) In a good way. She's very very fired up. It was
2: definitely an exclamation point weekend. (laughs) Good. Yeah, that's great.
0: Yeah. So today's episode is a little bit different in terms of our interviewee. What we decided to do was talk to a recent graduate. Uh, we wanted to find out more about, you know, someone, relatively recent anyway, and, and JR, you can update us on that. Um, we wanted to talk to someone who's who's been through this as a student, who was involved in community engaged experiences and has gone on to a role in social activism and really get that perspective. Um, and so, JR, do you want to talk a little bit about who you interviewed?
1: Yeah, I sat down with Ashley Ford. Ashley is a writer and a social justice activist. She is a staff writer for Elle Magazine, formerly with BuzzFeed News. She's great friends with Lena Dunham, went on her book tour with her. Uh, She and Lena, Lena have traveled to college campuses in the past year, getting students involved in the political process and having democratic conversations. She's an all around really just kind of unique person. And what I like about her are two things. One, she's a Campus Compact alum. So before I started my role with Indiana Campus Compact, I was at Ball State University, and Ashley was one of my students. And I met her when she was going through orientation, and there was something about her that I knew was special. And I got the opportunity to watch her grow as an individual, become involved in the local community. When I moved over to my role with Campus Compact, she became one of our students, actively involved in our advisory council and our other student initiatives. So that's one great thing. The other great thing is now all these years later, seeing Ashley as a community engaged citizen and how Campus Compact played a role in that, but how she's also blossomed from that now into a really productive adult who's using her skill of writing to make a difference in her communities. When I sat down with her, I was hoping to really just focus on how Her past experience with Campus Compact and volunteerism got her to where she is today, but we talked about a whole host of things, uh, including just higher education today. So let's go to that interview now, uh, if we can. I'm excited to welcome Ashley to Compact
3: Nation. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: You are welcome. Thank you again. Ashley and I have known each other for quite some time.
3: So much time.
1: So much time, probably (laughs) dating back to 11,
3: 12 years, around in that range. It was the fall of 2005 that I met you for the first time because it was during my freshman orientation at Ball State.
1: (laughs) So 11 years I've known Ashley. Before my life in the compact world, I worked at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, Part of my role was as orientation students would come through our office. I would give a background on what our office was, how we worked with students, how we worked with the community. And we would see literally hundreds of students a day come through over a several week period for orientation. And I will never forget the moment Ashley came through our office because one, she paid attention to what I was saying. That was sometimes rare, uh, (laughs) right? We We have to give it to new students coming through they're hearing so much information at orientation for over the two days that they're going from office to office. But I saw in Ashley's eyes, this sparkle, right? And she really perked up and I'm like, this girl is listening to what I am saying. So Ashley and I connected afterward because she was interested in one of the AmeriCorps programs. Uh, We were running through our office and I'll never forget that connection that we made. And even though I left Ball State right after, so Unfair in some ways to the students I made connections (laughs) with. I left and went to Campus Compact and Ashley started Ball State that fall, but I still stayed in communication because then Ball State was one of the campuses, um, a member through Indiana Campus Compact, stayed in contact with and Ashley ended up serving on our advisory council through Indiana Campus Compact for a couple of years. So I got to work with Ashley a bit through college. So that's kind of a a fun aside. (laughs) Oh yeah, we had a good time. <laughs> it, those were the good the good days back in the Ball State times. When you came through as a student, I, I'm really curious to start from there. Uh, when mm-hmm. you came in as a student to Ball State University and you went through that orientation experience and learned about our office, had you already come from a place where you had been in, engaged in the community as a junior high student, high school student? Tell us a little
3: bit about where you were at that place in your life. Um, In certain ways, yeah. I, You know, college for me was just this opportunity for a great freedom and like an opportunity to be able to do things that I'd always wanted to do but didn't always necessarily have the support to do um, in my hometown or in my school system, in my hometown in high school and middle school. Um, But I was as involved from pretty much as a kid could get, you know, like I was never an athlete. Like if, if it had to do with athletics, I, I wasn't there. Okay, but I was a band student. I was in band, I was in theater. Um, I was in the leadership club, which initially they didn't want to let me in because I had some um, behavioral issues. So I started showing up to the meetings anyway, and then they just let me in <laughs> eventually. <laughs> um well my behavioral issues were mostly what kids who were like me are always in trouble for which is not being satisfied with the status quo and asking a lot of questions and adults saying that asking questions is disrespectful and me being like that doesn't make sense so I I I I'm not paying attention to it and just doing what I wanted to you know, do anyway, which isn't always the right answer, but I think worked out well for me. Uh-huh. Um, but I was in leadership. I also um, was a part of an organization, um, a statewide organization in Indiana called Voice, um, which was for uh, young people, specifically school-aged people who were sort of like against smoking and like tobacco companies and you know we would go have these big meetings in indianapolis and then we would come back to our schools and start these smaller chapters of voice with other students and we'd get to you know plan events and we'd get to plan giveaways and all kinds of things and the news would come and interview you about what you were doing and for me that was always this thing that sort of like lit me up was people were listening and people it felt like at the time for sure that like not only were people listening but i was making a difference and i just kind of became obsessed with that so when i came to ball state for freshman orientation and i'm in the office of student voluntary services and someone's giving a presentation about how you can sign up for something called AmeriCorps, where you could do one thing I had to do, which I knew I was gonna have to get a campus job. And at the same time, your campus job could be, you know, actually going out into the community and serving people by tutoring and raking leaves and working at food banks or working in, you know, homes for the elderly and things. Like that blew my mind. You know, I had no idea at that point really what the nonprofit sector was. And it was this glimpse into a life where you could work and like have a life for yourself, but you could also be making positive changes in your community.
1: Mm -hmm. And I, I heard you just say, too, from your high school experience, the listening piece stuck out and yes. there's so much listening that has to happen when you are community engaged whether you're doing that through a nonprofit, you're a student who's engaged in their community there's a listening process that has to happen because in many ways we're coming in as outsiders to a mm-hmm. new community and I think universities do a good job of preparing students for that. Did you find that the listening piece when you went into your first volunteer experience through Ball State um, was key and what role did that play? to prepare you to work with other students because you went on to be a program coordinator as well right which yes. which is basically for people who don't know what that means outside of the ball state context a program coordinator is basically a student leader position guiding uh other underclassmen volunteers into the community
3: yes it when it was wonderful you know the thing that i realized really quickly was that There were people in SVS, in Student Voluntary Services, who had been doing it way longer than me, who had way more information than me, And I just asked them, you know, if they had had a site that I was now going to, I wanted to talk to them about, you know, what they'd done there before, what worked, what students had they worked with, do students usually come back, what is turnover? Like, you know, just getting an idea of what I was walking into with them, but also getting an idea so that, you know, when I became a program coordinator, Uh, to have the opportunity to talk to the volunteers who I was bringing with me as, you know, sort of like their leader and to be able to tell them what to expect and how we were going to do this thing and how we were going to get it together. You know, like it was wonderful and intense, but I've always been a person, you know, like when you talked about, (laughs) you know, people at orientation, half listening and, you know, like that was never going to be me because I'm an information junkie. Like, I love information, and I loved, you know, I I was obsessed with the idea that, like, I could get college right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you can't get college right if you don't listen to what people are telling you, you know, people are giving you information about, like, you know, If you don't like your major, how to change it. If you don't like a class, how to drop it. If you want to get into a class, how to add it, how to like talk to your professors, how to like be successful in the classroom. It's like, to me, all that information was like, whether I chose to use it or not, it was still valuable to have. And it would definitely be valuable to have, to pass on to someone else who it might work for, even if it didn't work for me. It's like, just the, I I feel like listening is the key to freedom because the key to freedom is options and you only know what your options are if you've been listening. Like, if you've actually been paying attention, that's the only way to know what your options are. And when you know what your options are and when you have as many options as possible, that's, to me, real freedom. Because then you're making choices based on what you want and who you want to be instead of just your circumstances or what you're left with or what you only believe you have access to.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. How do you feel that your involvement as a community engaged student uh, has helped you in your career today? So some people may look at your resume and say, wow, she is an accomplished writer and in many instances <laughs> kind of a celebrity, right? Kind of, you're kind of, a uh, <laughs> and, and, but, but I, I mean, I, I think you are, you know, and some folks might say, well, that doesn't necessarily translate its way to social justice, but if people begin to dig into your work, they see that your writing all the interviews you do are based in social justice. What was mm-hmm. it about your community experience as an undergrad that's prepared you for that career, if at all?
3: Well, one of the things I feel like I learned really quickly in my undergrad as far as volunteering and things like that was (laughs) that everybody can give something, but everybody's not good at everything, right? Like, there were some people who had the best hearts and really wanted to be really great tutors with kids, and they just couldn't do it. Like, they just, like their interactions with the kids were like so awkward or they, would, they were really easily frustrated with children. And it's like, it's not that you can't act. It's like, but this particular act might not be the right act for you. Let's find the right one for you. Like that's all, let's just find the right one. And I feel like when it came to trying to figure out how I wanted to be useful in this world, Writing and speaking and doing things like that were the most obvious because that is when I affect people most, to be perfectly honest. And that's something that I think I ran away from for a long time um, because it's responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's responsibility when you know that the things you say or the things you do, people are paying attention, like they're listening to you and some of them are listening to you so hard every once in a while that when you say something they kind of take just take it as law <laughs> and that's not really the right way <laughs> you know like you want people to be listening to all kinds of people you want people to be you know like listening and reading and stuff diversely but i know for a fact that there are people you know who read my work and say i didn't know how i felt about this until you wrote about it mhm you know what I mean? And now I feel the same way you do. And that's a lot of responsibility. Like that's a very hard thing to manage. And I basically decided that, you know, you don't get to choose your gift, right? Like you don't get to choose the thing that makes you effective. And if writing is my thing, if speaking is my thing that makes me effective, then I'm going to do it the way that I think is right, which is, you know, talking to people, listening to people, writing about people, writing about myself, writing about the world, writing about experiences, and doing so in a way that very obviously leaves room for other people to put themselves in the place of the protagonist in that writing so that they can empathize with me or with that person or with that experience it's like it doesn't have to be something they ever went through but they have to be able to feel the humanity in it so that they understand that it it is not far away from them Mm -hmm. like it it is something that they absolutely could go through Mm -hmm. you know one of the things that I feel like I, I learned really quickly in undergrad because I was volunteering, but then I was in classes with people who had never volunteered, had no interest in volunteering, had never worked with people living in poverty, you know, I had never worked with people with developmental d- disabilities or anything like that, was that, you know, oh, these people in these classrooms have no real understanding of what life is like For people in these other situations Mm. like the people who I'm in classes with are saying things like well some people just want to be homeless Mm. like that's just Mm. how they want to live so and I'm in class telling people that is really convenient for you. Because if you get to believe that some people just want to live without health insurance, some people just want to be homeless, some people, you know, are just lazy and don't want to work. If you believe that, then it completely removes you from any responsibility to help. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, it's so interesting because we're hardwired for empathy. I think about Susan Pinker's research around that where she essentially looked at connections among humans and found that um, a connection with one other person and truly getting to understand who they are is healthier for you than quitting smoking, which is absolutely amazing. But I think we condition ourselves to live in our bubbles and focus on our own individual lives that we don't take the time to tune into our natural instincts of empathy. And I think you're absolutely right. That's only done through stories and having to put yourself in the shoes of someone else. We talk a little bit about, you and I have had this discussion before, and if you're comfortable talking about this, I'd love you to share this <laughs> story. When you were an undergrad, um, you began a blog and you wrote a piece about your father and you had a, another student leader on campus, reach out to you who was in a similar situation and and that surprised you a little bit because you didn't realize that he was facing some of the same situations and feelings that you were as well. Can you talk a little bit about that if you're comfortable?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I started a blog with five of my women friends in college. We were all um, writers And we started a blog called Chicklets, um, which was basically us talking about books and writing and, you know, writers and, you know, all kinds of things, you know, but the point was just for us to create a writing practice that we stuck to. And every, each of us had a day of the week that we wrote something on the blog. Um, And one day, I just decided that I was going to write about my history with my father, who is in prison and has been since I was six months old, Um, and I'm almost 30, (laughs) and to write about how he was in prison for sexual assault. And for years, I had been lying to my friends and saying that I didn't know why he was in prison because the conversation was too complicated and I didn't know how to have it. I didn't know how to talk about the fact that my father was in prison or um, our relationship, You know, um, the letters that he had been writing me my entire life, I just wasn't ready to talk about it um, for a long time. And then very suddenly I was and not just like ready, but it felt imperative. And so I wrote this essay about the truth about my dad how I had been lying about it and why I had been lying about it and why I decided to stop lying about it, which was basically that I realized I was lying about it because I was ashamed and it wasn't earned shame. I had done nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I didn't do anything bad. And I was tired of living my life in a way where I was taking on a lot of shame for things that I did I hadn't done (laughs) that. I had no say in, no call, no active choice. It's like thing things that were circumstantial, I had decided I should feel guilty about. And I was just kind of done with that. So I wrote this piece and I put it on Facebook. I put a couple other places. I had been blogging, you know, for weeks, I didn't like maybe months. Like I definitely didn't think anybody would really pay attention to it. Um, But it got a lot of attention, and one of the people who paid attention to it was um, a big campus leader, a white guy, who you know was just like the guy around campus, like always doing stuff, always like you know popular and you know effective, and I think he was in like student government. Like he was just you know, he was like that guy on campus. And we were friends tangentially, you know, like tangentially, like we were, we knew each other and, you know, could sit and have a conversation together, but we weren't like, you know, friends, friends. But he sent me this message on Facebook after I posted that blog and said, I felt like it was just me. I never would have guessed that you were somebody else dealing with this. And it turned out his dad had been in and out of prison his whole life on drug charges and things like that and was currently in prison while he was talking to me. You know, like he felt all this shame and guilt about being the child of an incarcerated parent. And, you know, he told me about that and we talked about it, you know, online a little bit. And it was just one of those things where I was like, I never would have known. Like I never would have known. And now this person who I think of as like this big man on campus or whatever is in my inbox telling me that he read something I wrote, cried, and felt less alone in the world because of it. And I'm the only person who has ever been able to do that for him.
1: That is amazing. That is, I love that story. I love it every time you share it. What always sticks out to me is the word shame. In that story, and I'm always reminded of the wonderful Laverne Cox. Anytime I've seen her speak or I've watched any of her recordings, she talks about shame and says that shame is when you have accepted you are guilty and you are to blame. Um, and we often, so many of us live with shame because of lived experiences um, past experiences in our lives, and we're not the ones who are guilty of that, but we've mm-hmm. accepted it. We have so many students today who are living with shame in higher education. Do you feel like
3: we're preparing students to overcome that shame? I. I feel like I've been in classes with professors who really did the work and made sure that we were reading diversely and diverse stories and reading stories that would, you know, really resonate with the core of who we were as people. Like it would cause us to reckon with who we were and who we wanted to be. And I feel like professors like that are already doing that work like they are helping people figure out shame and how to wrestle with it and how to, you know, feel it, but not let it control you. You know, I I feel like some people are doing that. I feel like other people, you know, like it's hard. It's it's one of those things where, you know, there's this big conversation right now in higher ed about trigger warnings Mm -hmm. and how, you know, some professors see it as being you know, frivolous or even dangerous. And other professors feel the exact opposite. And in all of that, I feel like the biggest problem is that students and professors aren't having the same conversation about it. Because mm-hmm. professors are hearing, you want me to censor my syllabus. And I think a lot of students who are talking about trigger warnings are saying, nope, don't want it censored honestly would just love to know when something you know especially traumatic is gonna come up in the reading so that I can adequately prepare myself for that and it doesn't mean avoid it you know Mm -hmm. it just means like an opportunity to like take a breath or ask you know can I not have to read this piece out loud in class because I'm gonna cry and that's gonna be awkward for everybody Mm -hmm. you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like I think that we can do more for students to help them figure out some of that shame and to acknowledge it and wrestle with it. And I think that's one of the best things about trigger warnings is that it means a student has to come up to somebody and say, let me tell you what's hard for me. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what is so hard for me that I have to come sit and tell you, please let me know if something like this is coming up because otherwise I'm not going to be okay. Like that's a big brave thing and I don't think it's something people would do lightly and I also think that it's it's part of it. Like it is part of the teaching people that there's nothing to be ashamed of about feeling.
1: Mhm. <laughs> so yeah. do you feel like community engagement can help with that? Do you feel like it fills that gap in any way as far as giving students and experience with their local community, um, interacting with nonprofits, interacting with people who are different than them. Um, do you see community engagement as
3: playing a large role in this broader conversation? Absolutely. I absolutely do. And I do because it changes your frame of reference and frame of reference is everything. You know, I, I initially, I went on the, um, alternative spring break my freshman year uh, at Ball State Mm -hmm. and initially was not gonna go because they said we were going to some place called War West Virginia. (laughs) And to me that or Coretta, well Coretta, West Virginia, but Mm -hmm. also War West Virginia. Um, And to me that sounded like a place where someone as black as I am would not be welcome, Mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest. Like I just thought, oh, there's no way I'm going there because I like life. <laughs> like, yeah. I like, I'm not trying to get messed up because somebody just doesn't like the look of me mm-hmm. in a place that they don't think I'm supposed to be. Um, but I went, you know, I was convinced by my friend at the time, Danielle Doherty, who was um, just an amazing figure in SVS. I can't remember if she was the president at that time or not, but I know eventually she was the president. Um, But we went, and I had this amazing time. I had no issues with anybody saying anything, you know, pun unintended, off color to me. Mm -hmm. And more than that, I saw a level of poverty that I had never seen before in my entire life, except for the fact that it was white people Mm. instead of, like, I'm. Like black people always talk about being poor, you know, and not Mm -hmm. having it's like it's not even like a a anger or a sadness about it. It's like, oh, yeah, we just kind of don't have anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) like we're just kind of poor. Like that's like a conversation, at least where I come from, that was constant. You know, it was all the time.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: And then I go to this place and it's the first time I've ever, 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 ever seen white people. Living in a level of poverty and it changed my frame of reference. It changed the way I thought about poverty It changed the way I thought about kids who have to live in poverty like it changed a lot
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, those experiences are Some of the toughest I think to go through but some of the most rewarding How do you feel like that experience and other experiences you had as an undergrad? Um, How do you feel like they have led you to write about certain issues you focus
3: on today? I think I realized while in college that the biggest gap that I could readily acknowledge between people who seem to, you know, quote unquote, get it and people who didn't was what they had, had access to as far as information about people who weren't like them. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I can't, I came from a very, very, very black school system, you know, and being surrounded by my very, very, very black family, you know, like in one neighborhood, my whole family lives in the same neighborhood in Fort Wayne. Mm-hmm. So I had always been surrounded by black and, you know, white people, too. Like, I did not grow up in a place that was devoid of white people. All my teachers, for the most part, were always white. You know, any boss I ever had at a job was always white. Um, so, you know, and there were white students at my school. Not as many as black students, but there were some white students. And it wasn't until, you know, I went to college that i my freshman year of college to be specifically that i ever met a white person who sort of had no knowledge of like black life Mm -hmm. like they they knew that black people existed but had never like had a real conversation with a black person before or had never um seen a black person really that wasn't on like tv or something like you know like these things that i thought were impossible I thought it was impossible to live a life where you didn't, <laughs> you know, talk to black people all the time. Like I thought that was impossible, and I learned very quickly that it's not, and that these people often had what I considered really strange ideas about black people and our cultures and the way we spoke to each other and the way we spoke about uh, the world. It was it was so disheartening. It was mm-hmm. so disheartening because more than anything, I I want to communicate with people <laughs> and, right. I wanna, and I want to, and I want to connect with people. And there was automatically this wall because there was like, oh, like I can't, like, there are so many things I want to talk to you about, but I like, I don't know how we get through this initial part where you get over the fact that like, I'm the first black person you've ever sat down and had a conversation with, mm-hmm. you know, like stuff like that is hard. And I just think that like those connections and those stories and people having access to my story or someone else's story or whatever, like it just, it humanizes something for them that they might not actually have any real human experience with. Mm-hmm.
1: When you have the chance to interact with students about the political process and what it means to be an engaged citizen, at least politically, how do those conversations go with students? And is there anything that amazes you about today's student versus, you know, 10 years ago, right, when you were entering Mm -hmm. higher education?
3: You know, I feel like I learn a lot from students now. (laughs) To be perfectly honest, like, I feel like I learn a lot from them. And I also, you know, it's it's hard, you know, this last college that we went to when I was in North Carolina with those women, there was a girl who was like, oh, I'm not voting. And Mm. we were like, oh, why? And, you know, she was like, I don't like either candidate. And we were like, well, what about in local elections? And she was like, well, I don't know who's running in the local elections. And it was like well you can know like you know like mm-hmm. there was like, yeah i'm just i don't really care like i don't really i'm not interested and that was hard for me because you know i have the person kind of personality where i can't understand not being interested all the way down the ballot <laughs> like right. i can i can kind of understand being like you know you feel a certain way about both you know presidential candidate But the idea that like, you just don't care about like electing officials at all, you know, or propositions that might be on a ballot, like that's, you know, Mm -hmm. a little scary to me, but it's not bad. Like I think it's, I think with this generation of students, what's Mm -hmm. most important is to get them used to confrontation. Mm -hmm. I feel like there are still a lot of students who are conflict averse, like just conflict averse period, no matter what the stakes are. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would be really, really important at this point in our history for institutions of higher learning to encourage their students to have really, respectful, but still confrontational conversations about Mm -hmm. their ideas about, you know, who we are Mm -hmm. as a people, as a country, as a state, as a school, as a friend group, you know, whatever. It's like, who are we? And who do we want to be? What's the gap there? And how do we take it from, you know, one end of that gap? To the other end and then pull both those ends together it's like Mm -hmm. how do we do that
1: and so it's almost teaching deliberative and civil dialogue and, and students understanding how to do that we had a past guest on compact nation nancy thomas who talked about the fact that it's the role of every person in higher education if you're a faculty member if you're a professional staff member to talk about our political process and engage Mm -hmm. students in those conversations regardless of their discipline, because that connects to all disciplines. And I think some faculty and staff would argue that they're not prepared to have those conversations. We need better training. And I would agree with them in many ways, Um, but I do feel like some faculty and staff are so afraid to even facilitate those conversations, But, but it seems so...
3: Necessary.
1: Necessary, right? <laughs> and, and essential yeah. to, to the learning experience of creating democratic societies and having conversation across difference, but being able to still work together to plan for the future. And, and I would agree with you. I feel like that is a, a gap we're missing. And I think at Campus Compact, we're trying really hard to fill that gap. Um, When I think about higher ed's role as an essential building block of a just, equitable, and sustainable future, sometimes I have to ask the question if if we're living up to it. Um, I'm curious to know what what you think as someone who is an outsider, but also an insider, because you get to come in and out of higher education so often. Mm
3: -hmm. Do you mean, like,
1: do I think you guys are doing a good job or not? (laughs) Yeah, essentially. Um... And and you could be completely honest.
3: Yeah, I think that, um, I think he could be doing a better job. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is not to say that colleges, most colleges haven't been doing a good job so far, but I think that, uh, I think institutions in general start to get really attached to a status quo. And I think people get really nervous about change even in progressive institutions, mm-hmm. and I think, I think that it can't just be the students, you know, pushing for certain amount of change. It has to be the administration um, and faculties and their leaders as well. And but I don't know that an infrastructure is set up within um, higher institutions to complete that. Like, I don't know that at the administrative level, it's possible to be aggressively flexible or at the very least be, you know, just a little more open to things that may initially sound ridiculous, but I think it'd be really easy to find are not only not ridiculous, but incredibly effective. Mm -hmm. But people get so attached to their traditions and their regimens and all of those things that eventually anything that is unlike those things looks like a threat, even when it's an improvement. Mm
1: And I think some people would argue, too, I think people who would fall in the camp that that doesn't fit within my position description would see it as, well, why would I take on that that extra work? And so it's like helping people understand that we all have a role in building a democracy. That's hard. That's so that is. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is really tough in structures. I think we're trying, but I really appreciate your honest critique about that what what actions do you think we should take as higher education to prepare all students for lives of engaged citizenship beyond their role as a college student once they leave leave the safety of college in many ways and they're in the real world and they may choose to fight for social justice um, be engaged citizens how do we how can we
3: better prepare them i think probably The best way to prepare them is to, like, I mean, so many places, like, people are already offering student activities that are governed by students, you know, and so that already offers that sort of, you know, like, opportunity to really, like, dig in and have issues and resolve them and things like that. But I think that, you know, that has to happen in the classroom too. Mm -hmm. And, Not that it always doesn't, like, I definitely had classrooms where it did, but I think at some point, like, a student has to feel, you know, safe enough that they can talk about really difficult things in the classroom and actively argue against professors without fear of repercussion you know, for a respectful disagreement. like, And I don't think, and I think part of the problem is that a lot of people, um, students, professors, like people in general don't know how to be effective disagreeers. Right. <laughs> like we don't know how to do it because if we knew how to do it, more people would fight to find a solution mm-hmm. than to win.
1: Thank you so much, I appreciate everything and um, enjoy your weekend
0: okay everybody we're back jr that was a great interview um i loved hearing from ashley her perspective is very interesting i loved how much she talked about what she learned from community engagement including you know things like the importance of listening how to talk to people um and effectively disagree that kind of thing that really stood out to me
2: Yeah, I was really struck by her discussion of, well, you know, for me in the context of a lot of discussions right now about whether students are coddled on our campuses. And I think people mean that in a couple different ways, but I thought she addressed sort of two aspects of that. One, just the sense of uh, being reminded that for many, many college students, and there's a lot of research showing this, it's financially incredibly difficult to make it through college. These students are working very hard They aren't sure necessarily how they're going to put together money for tuition, for housing, to feed themselves. And just that reality that, you know, I think people often picture college as a place where really where wealthy students are in residential settings and everything's taken care of for them, and it's just not the reality. And then the other part of it was, you know, in the discussion about trigger warnings and safe spaces. Again, people, I think there's a caricatured version that somehow students are being protected from ever encountering contrary views and I thought Ashley did a great job of saying it's not about that I want to encounter contrary views but if I'm somebody who has experienced some traumatic stuff it can be more effective as an educational tool for me to encounter those views when I have a little bit of emotional preparation for it if I'm blindsided I'm not going to be able to focus and think and listen well and if I've got some preparation, I can do that and I'm going to get much more out of the, uh, the discussion in class or the reading or the film or whatever the experience is. So I, I found those insights really helpful.
1: I I agree. I also enjoyed her perspective on inclusion and what lens we are viewing the world and messaging that we are using to attract students to our work. We had a long discussion about who's at the table and if a student walks into a room and everyone at the table looks the same but unlike the student, that isn't always a welcoming environment. And so we always have to be really careful about our messaging in all environments to make sure that we're inclusive. And I think we've done a good job. Of that at Campus Compact, I think there's room for us to grow for certain. But for me, it was just a really great reminder about messaging and the messages that we put off as organizations around inclusion.
0: Completely, I think that's the biggest thing I'll take away and think more about how we can incorporate it. Is just the idea that you're always sending signals about who's in the club, who you want to work with, um, who who can be a part of what you're doing, and thinking about what those signals are, especially when they might be, you know. Not in our not consciously made, and then really going out of our way to make it extremely clear um, that we do want a, a diverse group of people involved in what we're doing, and, and just thinking about how we're doing that. That that was very uh, insightful, and I appreciated her saying that.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, we at Campus Compact, as both of you know, have been uh, working on just being better in this way as an organization, and some of this comes from the kind of campus environments that I think Ashley was talking about, students increasingly claiming their voice and, and asking campuses to be more inclusive in very specific ways. We've heard that, our executive directors, you guys, the rest of our staff on the ground have been hearing that from our campuses that they want Campus Compact's help in that. And so that's one of the reasons we've undertaken kind of a series of steps to try to become an organization that both can internally Kind of uh, manifest those values but also can support others so we've done some work on just at the individual level beginning to uh, build our capacity to think and understand ourselves in this context we're all uh, completing the intercultural development inventory uh, as a tool for learning more about kind of where each of us is positioned and working from there to think about how can we do more organizationally but it is it's a a process that involves a ton of listening i think we, we know we have a lot of work to do as an organization, and certainly higher education has to just keep getting better at this.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, should we turn it to our final segment, um, pretty uncreatively titled Pop Culture Corner? You know, we might have to take um, some listener suggestions on, on what we might call this. But basically, just wanting to kind of relate what we're talking about, what we do to the the broader culture because I think sometimes um you know it's so in the weeds it's so in higher jargon and all that stuff it helps me at least to kind of get outside that bubble and think about how I might explain this to other people but what I was thinking about for this time is I, I think a lot of people you know again in the wake of the election no matter who you supported um are having interesting reactions to social media I know that I myself have been largely avoiding it uh It just became kind of became too much um in a lot of different ways and i've heard that from a few different friends and others and um but also thinking about you know what role does social media play in our democracy you know there's been some some negative stories about the role of facebook and fake news and that kind of thing but it can also be a powerful organizing tool so that's something i've been thinking about and i wanted to know what you guys thought
1: well, I'll first say that I love the name Pop Culture Corner.
0: All right. All right. We'll <laughs> so but
1: I but I am open to suggestions as well. If people have something else they may want to call that. I also agree that as I've been looking at my newsfeed on Facebook in particular, if it's related to the election, I have found myself just continuing to to scroll. I feel like I just can't read any more about it right now. I I need a bit of a break. And I know I'm not alone in those feelings. And then I also remember that we can't take breaks. We also have to be actively engaged in discussions across difference. And I feel like we could be good models of civil dialogue on social media just because of our backgrounds and the work that we do. And I think social media can play a good role in that. I don't think that social media can be the end-all uh... be all of, of everything we need to have that face-to-face connection which has been lost over time but so many people are on social media and so rather than um, getting upset by the divisive post i think we could play a role in uh, facilitating civil dialogue online
2: you know i i think uh, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of debates about drug enforcement policy you know the question of do we need to you know, stop the supply from entering the country? Do we need to cut down on demand? And I think a similar thing applies that you know, if there are people who want to consume fake news, for example, then somebody will supply that you know, and meet the demand. And I think we, especially in education, have to focus on the demand side and ask why it is that people who have gone through primary and secondary education, in some cases higher education, are... Willing to read things that are absurd and demonstrably false, and kind of don't even look true on the face of it, and believe it. And you know, I think for me, that's that's an important question: is what can we do to simply raise our standards as consumers of media? The, the other thing I was thinking about: I happened to be at a meeting recently with David Bornstein, who is many people will know as the uh, author of the book How to Change the World, and he's the founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, and He was saying that, you know, that he thought social media was getting too much blame for what had just happened in the election in the sense that many people who are primarily consumers of old media had kind of just as crazy opinions about various public policy questions and believed as many facts that were not facts as other people. And his point was just that our traditional media have accepted a picture of the world where everything is threat and disaster and fear in a way that just isn't actually representative of what's going on in our universe. So, and again, for me, that sort of pointed back to, uh, you know, the question of education and and what kinds of consumers of information we are.
0: Well, yeah. And I think what you just said goes back to the supply and demand question as well, because, you know, traditional journalism has been under threat of existence in a lot of ways. And so what are they going to do? They're going to, produce what gets people to their site what gets people to consume what they're putting out and unfortunately a lot of that is the fear based news um so i think it you know in in a lot of ways we can bring it all back to what are we looking for when we seek out media Mm -hmm. Um, what are the things we click on what are the things we seek out is it stories of people solving the issues or is it fear-based news that confirms what we already think.
1: And how can we better educate people on fake news versus real news? Because I do feel like, you know, there's a huge segment of folks who just aren't familiar with the fake news uh, and they believe what they're sharing is the truth. And I think Mm -hmm. that causes the divide when someone points out, like, that's not a real news source. So I think we need to consider how we approach that in a civil way. But but education around that has to be done, right?
0: Yeah. And that goes back to critical thinking in a lot of ways. And the, the kind of skills that you know employers are saying they're not seeing enough and that is needed in our democracy, just the ability to ask questions, to look at a piece of news and ask where it came from and how it was sourced and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You know, I think uh, it is one of those things too. just, you know, responding Emily to what you just said that where we see that the divide that is often made between education kind of in a traditional liberal arts way or education that focuses on citizenship skills. uh, People present that often as very different from education for the workforce, but the ability to distinguish between information that is plausible and that isn't to recognize kind of the the evidence of a foundation in fact versus uh, something that somebody just made up that that's relevant in a million different professional settings as well as uh, you know essential to to performing one's public role as a citizen Uh, so I think you know there's a lot that kinda swirls around this but I think the basic idea that we're just not doing a good enough job in that way at at any level of education that really kinda pops out to me
0: Oh, absolutely. Let's have an entirely uh, other conversation that wasn't English, but okay, Um, about that idea that there really is not a difference between what employers are looking for in a lot of cases and what we need for our democracy. Um, We actually, I don't think, have to choose (laughs) between two separate things there. I think it's a lot of the same skills and uh, the critical thinking and dialogue across difference and some of the things we've been talking about today are among those.
2: Indeed. Agreed.
0: Well, that's a good note to end on, guys. I like it when you agree with me.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Should we call it a day?
1: We should call it a day. Happy holidays, everyone. We'll see you yes. in the new year.
0: Yep. Um, you'll be listening to this, I think, after Thanksgiving, but we're headed into Thanksgiving, so... Um, So, yes, happy holidays. Enjoy time off, hopefully, and uh, we will be back.
2: Bye-bye. everybody. Bye.
0: Bye.
1: Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mati at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online
2: at compact.org. Hey, Habiba, how was that for an episode? Mm-hmm.